The following has been brought to you by SJP World Media. And welcome to the Doctor Who pod. My name is Sai, and joining me as always is my partner in time, Mr. Dan Griffin. How are we doing, my friend? I was doing well until we tried to start recording, and then <laughs> the whole system just completely shit the bed. <laughs> yeah, everything everything just kind of had a big, massive brain fart, didn't it? I don't know what was going on there. Oh, it did, it did. It was, uh, yeah, it was like me trying to function this morning after staying up for Survivor Series it's not like i can even blame my internet because my internet's been really good for weeks now and there's no one else in the house so there's no one else online apart from me the numbers on my speed test are really good i've got no idea why it's been a dick yeah mine was full signal uh my internet was full signal it was going fine no dropouts but you know we we carry on We, we persevere through these trials and tribulations like the absolute podcasting heroes that we are of course, of course. On today's show, we are visiting the David Tennant era of Doctor Who, an episode first broadcast on May the 6th, 2006, uh, relatively early in David Tennant's run, shown by how young the guy looks in these epi- in this episode, I think. And we are taking a look at The Girl in the Fireplace, which is a choice of yours, Dan. Uh, why did you go for this one? I went for this one because it, it sort of stands out to me and, and always has since aired as one of the best sort of standalone stories of there's certainly of tenants here, but I'd be willing to put it up against almost anything of the entire New Who run. Um, because they managed to tell a very sort of a very intricate story in within 45 minutes, but you never feel lost or overwhelmed by any details or anything like that and i've said before about a, a sort of show don't tell approach to telling uh, to telling these stories and i think this is is quite a, a quite a good example of that because as we go on we'll, we'll see just how much we're left to the audience are left to extrapolate information just from a few lines of dialogue or even at some points just a look on one of the characters faces mm-hmm. so i really wanted to get into this and also it's it's quite the emotional gut punch at times as well, which, again, is very difficult to do, considering this is, like I say, a self-contained story. Yeah, definitely. And it is pretty amazing to me because I watched this just before we sit down to record because, as we're all aware, my memory is shocking. So I like it it to be fresh (laughs) in my mind. You know, even though I make notes, I like it to be fresh in my mind. I was amazed. Looking back on this episode, I watched it recently for my sort of new who rewatch run through however you want to word it with, with charlie my daughter i know that there's a lot that goes on in this story especially from an emotional standpoint but when i brought it up on the old bbc iPlayer, it clocked in at 45 minutes and i was like no that can't be right and for a split <laughs> second I, I even thought is this a two-parter and i've just got this wrong yeah i can completely see how because it it 
it does that thing where it flits between two settings, not not so much mm. two stories, and it feels so much bigger and, and broader scope than it than it actually is. Like you say, it, it does feel like something that could fit into a two-parter. Yes, indeed, indeed. Uh, I also, this was brilliant as well. Um, uh, people on the uh, who have listened to the show before know about my. Uh, my youngest watching New Who with me, and she's now obsessed with Doctor Who. And David Tennant, she's only seen, we're only a few, well, I'd probably say seven or eight episodes into Matt Smith's run. David Tennant is by far and away her favourite. When I said I was going upstairs to watch an episode of Doctor Who for the podcast, Charlie asked what I was watching. And I said, oh, the girl in the fireplace. And she said, is that the one with the clockwork men? Mm. And I was like, yeah, it is, yeah. And she went, oh, hang on then. And she grabbed her a teddy and got herself a drink and came up and watched it with me, even though she's seen it recently. <laughs> Oh, she loves David Tennant. So I did try and get her to sit down afterwards, pop the headset on, so I could ask her a couple of questions so we could get like her thoughts and opinions on this, you know, firsthand. Mm. She weren't too keen on that. She's uh, she's close to breaking, but she's still not 100% <laughs> there. But she did say, you can ask me the questions you want and just write it down. So I've got a little section that we'll go through at the end, Dan, with Charlie's opinions on certain things. I've got like questions that she answered and so on, which would be quite interesting. Some of the answers she gave, I think, would be really interesting to, to, to you and people listening as well, my friend. Oh, fantastic. Oh, yeah, I can't wait to I can't wait to hear this because this is I'll, I'll just lay my lay my cards on the table, as you probably guessed from my reasons for picking it. This is one of my favourite episodes. So mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, you know, particularly after you picked Vampires of Bloody Venice, and given what's coming up next week, as we'll get to, um, I wanted to, I wanted us to have something, uh, something fun to talk about. Yeah, good shot. I mean, first impressions then. When I was going to do my watch back with Charlie, more so than than watching it back for the podcast now, because that was the long gap between watching it when it aired and then rewatching it again. Mm. When we got to this one. I saw the thumbnail on the iPlayer, the picture, and it kind of made me remember moments of this story. And I'm not going to lie. If I was watching it on my own, I might have skipped it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that I'm watching it all in order with Charlie means I can't. She wants to watch everything. But at that moment in time, I was like, no, if I was watching it on my own, I might have skipped it. Because I remember it being a lovey-dovey, wishy-washy, soppy love story. And I was a bit like, no, I, I ain't about <laughs> that. Let's just, you know. But how wrong am I? There is aspects very, of that, very. but it's so much more. Yeah, it really is. Um, and like I said, I can't give, I can give more sort of rough thoughts from back when, you know, back in 2006 when I watched this, because obviously you go in pretty much, you know, sight unseen at that point, don't you? Mm-hmm. When I first watched it, I thought, I was, I was 17-ish. So I watched it and I thought, wow, that was bloody good. You know, just like you know, all the drama with and, and the the time travel and and the sci-fi and the going back, trying to you know, trying to scan this this French aristocrat's brain and and all the you know all the gnarly stuff that will that will sort of come to. And then as I've got older, I've appreciated the the finer character points of the Doctor uh, in this episode and and the effect that he has on on those that he encounters. You know, and I think this episode in particular does a really good job of putting across just how influential the doctor can be in pe- in those people's lives, even just on chance encounters, because we get to see a lifetime's worth of experience from, uh, from Renette's standpoint within the 45 minutes. And yes. That, that in particular is something I think quite unique to this episode. I can't recall seeing that anywhere else. 
Yeah, you're right. You're right. It's, I, I just think there's so much going on. I mean, in theory, then, I mean, let's, 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 let's break it down, shall we? In theory, it's not a massively complicated story. We've effectively yeah. got, you know, France in the 1700s, and then 3,000 years in the future, the Doctor, Rose, and, and Mickey, for the first time, is on a spaceship, and there's portals between the two times. And this ship basically needs to um, acquire a body part, shall we say, from Madame de Pompadour to complete the building of their spaceship. That's the theme of the episode. So, but there's so much more going on. But when you really break it down, that's that's effectively the, the plot in, in a nutshell, I guess, Dan, isn't it? It is, yeah. Um, and, and David Tennant, uh, sorry, Tennant breaks it down uh, as the Doctor really well. It, it's it's a, it's a spaceship from the 50 sec- 51st century stalking a woman from the 18th. You know, that's it's that in a nutshell is so simple, but there's so much more around it. Um, yeah. You know, right from the time they they land on the ship, I mean, there's, there's a little bit before the credits. Um, and the first thing you've got is, you know, a bit of a... A bit of sci-fi, a bit of sci-fi stuff saying that this ship's putting out enough power to punch a hole in the universe, but we're not moving. And they're yeah. using all that power to generate these portals, you know. And it's it even just that it's like when I say we will beat boop, it's it, it's all, it, it all sounds so plausible, mm. even though they're speaking yeah. in very general terms. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> um, that scene before the credits roll. I think is great as well because we're in you know the, the 1700s France and you get all the uh, the setting of the scene I suppose the expensive artwork the I mean it, it's very much a, a regal setting and mm-hmm. people in you know very much period dress as well looking very posh and resplendent and they're all screaming and running around because there's these crazy looking clockwork dudes running well not running they're literally stomping about the place. And then there's a very attractive lady shouting into her fireplace, refusing to leave um, as she's being, uh, you know, asked to leave by someone who we don't, we're not aware of who that individual is at this point. And she's shouting into the fireplace. No, it's going to be fine. Doctor, we need you now. And that's Mm -hmm. when the music hits. And I thought that was, that was brilliant. It it goes even deeper than that though, because this whole thing visually and, um, and with, with the audio sets the scene sets, just sets the episode up so well because you hear the clockwork noises. You see the French aristocrats running around in, like you see in the period dress. You see the exterior of the Palace of Versailles. We see the broken clock and they say, the, you know, the clock's broken. That means he's coming. And Sophia Miles, is, who is a fantastic actress, um, is saying, you know, man who's watched over all her life. So we know there's backstory there already. And she said, you know, she's saying to this fella, the only man save him she's ever loved. And she sends him to his queen. So we immediately know that he's a king. Mm-hmm. Yep. She's established him herself as his mistress. And just within that, it tells, it gives you so much about this, about what's to come and, and where we've got to get to within that first minute, minute and a half. It really is very well done. And this was actually, this episode was written by Stephen Moffat, uh, who took over from Russell T Davis as the, um, uh, you know, as, as, the, as the main showrunner, and this is a real. You know, Moffat gets a lot of shit for uh, for some of the for some of the Matt Smith stories, but I, this is up there for me with uh, with some of his best work. 
yeah i agree i agree i mean i suppose spoiler alert we're gonna sing uh how great this is all the way through the episode i feel already so if people are, if people are looking for us to be miserable and shitting on it you're probably on the wrong show but there I've we got, go uh, yeah, I've, I've, I've got a few i've got a couple of nitpicks okay um, Fair enough. interesting they'll, they'll come out down the line yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, just, the, you know, sorry, sorry i was just gonna take i was just gonna take over and say we're on the spaceship <laughs> that's not exactly what i was gonna say <laughs> It's, all, it's almost like we watch the same episode and we know what's happening next. Years later on... Yeah, I know. It's weird, that. Um, <laughs> and we're on the spaceship and uh, the Doctor, Mickey and Rose, come out the TARDIS. I mean, straight away, this this comes across quite a creepy setting. But I think in a way it loses how creepy it is the further the episode goes on because of the moments of comedy we have. It does a bit, but I think it was kind of necessary to, to have that bit of levity. Because the, the ship itself isn't the creepy element. The creepy no. element is, is the clockwork robots. And mm-hmm. Mickey, at this point, is very much a, a comic relief character, so you know what you're going to get from him. Um, ultimately, I generally sort of start to feel a bit sorry for Mickey, <laughs> just because just he, he seems to just get shit on for a great, from a great height in these early days. Uh, um, I find him a bit annoying, to be honest. Yeah, well, he is a bit, but, you know... So, you know, he still gets still gets kicked while he's down because you know this is his first time out and the they're acting like he should the doctor in particular is acting like he should know what's going on. Yeah, this is true. This is true. Uh, quite, you know, pretty much straight away the doctor establishes that you know there's no crew, there's a lot of power being used on this ship, but it's not actually moving anywhere. So it's sort of adding to the intrigue all the time, even in these opening couple of moments on the ship. And then the doctor sees a girl in a French fireplace on this futuristic spaceship. Yeah, it's it's a bizarre one, isn't it? Because it and it, it speaks to the, the sort of the the effect the effectiveness of practical effects. Um, because you know they find this fireplace. There's a, there's a young girl called Renette on the other side in a, in a bedroom in Paris. But from their point of view, that's the outer hull of the ship. You know, she should be in space. And yeah. the doctor's sort of quite jovial, and he's asking, you know, asking where she is, what year is it? Saying he's doing a routine fire check, and she <laughs> says it's it's seventeen twenty seven, and he does that tenant thing where he goes, "Lovely year, one of my favourites." August is rubbish though. Stay indoors, you know, just yeah. dropping, just dropping little hints, and and then just you know, says, "Enjoy the rest of the fire." Um, and it's it's a wonderful sort of moment of intrigue, and we get the first bit or the first sort of really, I think, fun interaction where Mickey's having a bit of a bitch and saying, I thought it was the 51st century. And the Doctor pointing out, well, I did say this ship was generating enough power to punch a hole in the universe. It must be a spatio-temporal hyperlink. And Mickey says, what's that? And he just goes, no idea, I just made it up. Didn't want to say magic door. (laughs) Brilliant, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I absolutely love it. And it even has Rose taking the piss out of him, um, you know, and saying... You know, summing up that it's a magic door, and we've got seventeen twenty-seven France on the other side, and explaining to Mickey what the what the sort of translation matrix is. And it's funny you say about Mickey being a bit annoying because in my notes I've, I've put there's a there's a kind of wonderful childish yet slightly annoying naivety about Mickey, and it just it kind of feels like he's been taken advantage of, <laughs> you know, in certain aspects. Because, you know, in the first series, you know, Rose just turns back up and, you know, good old faithful Mickey's still sat there waiting for her. Mm. 
And you know, now he gets taken along and he gets almost mocked later on and in previous episodes <laughs> or future episodes, sorry. Yeah, yeah, very true. Um, the doctor ends up in France pretty early though, doesn't he? Because he's talking at this fireplace and so on. And then it spins round like the, the reveal on Bullseye when they're saying, yeah. I want a speedboat. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> yeah, and, and, oh God, and Bully's special prize, a sleeping <laughs> French child. <laughs> oh god! The, the, well, the thing is, this is this is one of this is one of my nitpicks because the dog's just wandering around this child's bedroom. Between, oh, don't scream! It's just me. It's fireplace man. That's a reason to scream. Oh yes, <laughs> yes. I mean, you saying about Bully's special prize being a sleeping French child? You know, you go back to some of these TV people in the seventies and eighties. They probably would have had that. Yeah, that's that's what worries me. Um, <laughs> but, but then we get uh, the first sort of moment of, of that's genuinely creepy. Um, although Renette, bless her, sorry, bit of noise, mind. Um, Renette, bless her, says, you know, asks him who he is and what's he doing there, which absolutely valid. And we we've got the doctor essentially being scared of a broken clock, which is a bit of an odd one, and. I love it because it's a few moments before this you hear the ticking. Yes. And he's just, he's there a tiny bit scared, yeah. Because if this clock's broken and it's the only clock in the room, then what's that? It's like the um, the tape uh, running out in the uh, the empty child. Exactly. That's exactly what I've got written in my notes as well. It's that kind of background clue to what's going on that either yeah. you, you twig yourself and you think, oh, shit, and you're waiting for the Doctor to catch up. Mm. Or you're aware of it, but it's not uh, a giveaway. And then the Doctor points it out, and you're like, oh, yeah, okay, that's not good. Yeah, it's it's just so good. And then he's, the Doctor's, you're listening to it, and he's, he's, he's sort of guiding along. He says, that's not a clock you can tell by the resonance. It's too big. Mm-hmm. It's, the size, it's the size of a person. And it's sort of breaking it down in real, you know, and just saying, let's think, if you're ticking, the first thing you do is break the clock. No one notices the sound of one clock ticking, but two. You might start to wonder if you're really alone. And it's just ramping up the tension with almost every word. As he tells her to stay in the middle of the bed and ducks down to look underneath. And, you know, it's that basic of fear that we all have, the basic of fears that we all have as children, the monster under the bed. Yes, and he, he goes to with the sonic and something lashes out at him. And then he's just staring at sort of buckled shoes and high socks, which not exactly creepy, but you never know. And then we've got one of my favourite shots in the, in the whole episode as he very slowly looks up and goes to stand up and tells Renette not to look round. And there's something behind me. It's the, you know, the powdered wig of the time, the proper, you know, the, the ruffles on the chest and all the rest of it. But it's the mask. It's the ornate, creepy, smiling mask mm-hmm. just looming behind this child. That's just like, it's just like, oh, shit. And I remember watching this with my dad, you know, a former, uh, former unintentional guest of, on the show. Um, <laughs> And he just looked at it and just at the time just went, ooh, I don't like that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, it is, it's creepy though, isn't it? It really yeah. is. I mean, um, you think as well, I mean, that, that imagery, the, the, the mask I'll come to, that imagery, that that sort of um, the the structure, the, 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 the sort of facial structure, the shape and so on, the eyes and the smile, 
I mean, it's still used in horror films now. People still wear these masks in certain horror films uh, and so on, present day. So it shows how that imagery does work on many different levels. Yeah, absolutely. Even the most recently, um, that the similar face shape, and, and particularly in the mouth, was used in promotional posters for the, the horror movie Smile. The hit cinemas, yes. you know, that, that kind of creepy smile was plastered on the sides of buses. It's, but things as well, I find it, the whole picture, when you look at it, when you actually look at this dress, you know, the way this thing's dressed, it's a little bit ridiculous, but that somehow makes it even more creepy. It's just, it's, it, it's humanoid enough to be odd. It's that, again, I've re- I think I referenced it in the last episode. It's that uncanny valley factor. Hmm. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Uh, we get a great line as well, uh, as the Doctor kind of ends up effectively battling this this individual in, in the girls' room, that, you know, monsters under the bed, you know, stuff and nightmares is, mm. is hinted at or actually said. And he says that the monsters have nightmares about him. And that, I thought, was so... I mean, there's, so, there's quite a few of those little one lines thrown in to this episode that I think work. Some of them in other episodes, other stories don't quite resonate. But I don't mm. think they miss in this episode. Yeah, the, the, this yeah, this is definitely more hits. Because um, but he's saying all this to Renette and trying to keep her calm as this robot monster creature slashing at him because it's still an unknown quantity at this point. We don't know it's just a robot. Yeah, you know, we don't know what it's all about. And it's got a blade unsheathed. They've had a standoff with the, the doctor pointing the screwdriver and the, this creature with the blade out of his arm. And he's there uh, saying, you know, even monsters, like you say, even monsters from under the bed have nightmares. And Renette's just questioning, he's like, what do monsters have nightmares about? And he just goes, he, he gets it, he dodges a swipe. The creature gets the blade stuck in the mantelpiece and he just goes, me. And he does that David Tennant, ha! You know, as he pulls the lever and, it, and he goes back to being on Bullseye. Back to being on Bullseye. <laughs> and then, um, but immediately the action doesn't stop. He freezes the thing in place. And Mickey's just there, like, really enthusiastic. So, excellent, ice gun. And he's like, no, it's a fire extinguisher. As if Mickey could know. Yeah, exactly. But, I mean, to be fair to Mickey, it does look like a gun. It doesn't look like a fire extinguisher that we'd be familiar with. It's very gun-like, isn't it? It is, yeah, it is. And Rose is asking, you know, just sort of relatively calmly asking what it is and, and why, it dre- why it's dressed like that. And it's... I quite like this bit because it's like it's a camouflage protocol, fair enough. But he takes the the mask and the wig off, and it's a clear head underneath on this robot, and you can see all the inner workings of this clockwork. And the doctor's just absolutely gushing over how beautiful it is. And I just wanted to take a minute to actually appreciate the craft the craft that went into making that. Like from a, from just from a, you know technical standpoint, because there are moving parts in there and all sorts. That cannot have been easy. I love all that sort of stuff. I mean, I contradict myself a little bit, to be fair. I, I, I don't know whether it's a certain point of, of the OCD that I have, like this sort of mild OCD or whatever. I can't stand something ticking. Mm. It drives me batty. If I go around my mother-in-law's house, there's a, there's a clock in the sort of kitchen, diner kind of setup they've got, and it's fucking loud. I mean, if I ring the wife when she's out and I'm trying to find out where she is, I know she's at her mum's without her having to answer. So I can hear this bastard clock ticking, and it, <laughs> and it just drives me mad. I've I, in the past I've taken when I, when I you know when I've sat downstairs watching the TV and I've had to turn it down a bit quieter because you know the kids are in bed and whatnot and the wife's in bed. 
the the clock on the mantelpiece in our front room in our living room i'm about to pick up and put in the kitchen because it's ticking too late for me and as soon as i notice it ticking it drives me mad so i can't <laughs> handle the the repetitive tick 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 at all drives me nuts however the workings of a proper clock or the dials and and all that sort of stuff i think are brilliant and in the past we've given my father-in-law a pocket watch that you can actually open up and the back is transparent as well and you can see all the workings absolutely superb i love it it's it's gorgeous just the the intelligence behind that to get it to get every all those intricate little pieces and then Mm. to see it like this on on such a large scale it it might be one of the best designs not scariest just the best design on a on a villain or on a, on a monster yeah and it goes, really. it goes it goes it goes forgotten as well a lot of people like this episode but i've never encountered anyone online or in person who's had sort of the same enthusiasm for the design <laughs> as i have it just shows that i spent too much time thinking about this sort of thing probably <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, the doctor heads back to France, though, doesn't he? Pretty, pretty much straight away. Yeah. I suppose he wants to check if a little girl is okay because that's quite a traumatic experience for for. Well, I was going to say for a child, for anyone. I, I'd hate to have a ticking monster under my bed. Um, <laughs> I'm going to get Sharon to put that clock under your bed. <laughs> oh, God. That, oh, don't I'll have nightmares. Uh, <laughs> the, the doctor goes back to France and tells Mickey and Rose not to wander off. So of course they they wander off, yep. and this here becomes the first, I suppose, really good exchange between Renette and the doctor. Yeah, because he goes back and he's not met by the young girl he once left. He's met by a young lady at this stage. And we find then that going in and out these these portals, these these gaps in in the spaceship that take you into France and so on. Time passes at different rates, I guess, Dan, doesn't it? Yeah, it's um, it's not a it, it's called a loose connection. Mm-hmm. In the a few you know a couple of minutes pass in uh, in this on the spaceship, it could be years in France. You know, but you know, a couple of minutes pass on the spaceship. It could be a few hours. You know, so it's not quite an exact science. And she just sort of walks in, and he's asking for Renette, and and she says, you know, she, she has a great line and very formally saying, "It's customary, I think, to have an imaginary friend only during one's childhood. You were to be congratulated on your persistence." Yeah, and that's that's brilliant. The, the look on Tennant's face as he realizes that this is Renette, and it's. It's kind of like instantly obvious that he's a bit flustered because he's like, oh, oh, shit, um, uh, I don't know where to look now. Um, and it gives it the goodness how it gives it the goodness how you've grown line. Oh, and her response is oh, it, she's it's fantastic. She, what, I, what I love about this from Sophia Miles, she she is fucking with him from minute one, and just just trying her best to fluster him. And he, you know, saying he hasn't aged a single day, and it's tremendously impolite. Um, <laughs> and then the doctors then say, you know, because she's getting called to go go in a carriage with her mother or whatever, and he's saying, I best be getting off. Can't have you, can't have your mother finding you with a strange man in your room. And she's like, How could you be a stranger? I've known you since I was seven. And he's like, Oh, suppose you have. Um, she, oh, balls, I can't get out of this. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and she. This line sets up obviously something later on where she says, "You seem to be flesh and blood, but this is absurd. Reason tells me you cannot be real." And the doc says, "You never want to listen to reason," mm-hmm. and that's just a, a great sort of drop in in dropping line for for something that comes out later on. And 
the next bit is is sort of crucial to the whole thing for me because it for me it ties the it ties the story to or well not the story it ties the interactions between uh, Renette and the Doctor together because it gives context to to how the Doctor can hold her in such high regard having only met her as a child and then briefly as an adult because um, you should say basically. She gets called for to go at the carriage, and she's saying a moment, and they, they basically, I fucking each other at this point. And she says, she says, <laughs> but she but she says so many questions, so little time, and she just plants one on the doctor up against the fireplace, yeah. And he's just like, okay, shit. Um, then you know the servant yells for her, she breaks off, just leaves him sort of sort of reeling there, probably nursing a semi. Um, the servant walks Three. in. Well, well, it could be two, three, eight, you know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, and the, the servant walks in and, and yells for uh, Mademoiselle Poisson. And the, this triggers sort of the doctor into snapping out of it. And he's they're saying, Renette Poisson? No, 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 no. no. And, and he's he reels off her entire history, basically her entire history. You know, and, and actually accomplishments. Yeah, she's, she's yeah. later Madame d'Etoile, later the mistress of Louis the Fourteenth, Fifteenth, uncrowned Queen of France, actress, artist, musician, dancer, courtesan, fantastic gardener. And he's just sort of <laughs> ranting, ranting on and on. Um, and the, this poor, this poor blows up like, who the hell are you? And he just says, I'm the doctor, and I just snogged Madame de Pompadour. Um, and he goes back through the fireplace and this is like on the surface, this is just the doctor bragging essentially, but it's so much more than that. It, it, it sort of shows that he knows who she is, who she's by reputation and is a great admirer of her and has looked up, you know, looked up her history and, and like I say, just holds her in, in, in high esteem to the point that he's, he's thrilled and, and honored to have essentially been sexually assaulted by her. Um, because it's, but that that is crucial because establishing that that sort of esteem from the doctor means that this sort of relationship between the two and this almost infatuation can yes. develop very quickly because obviously he saved her as a child. She's gonna absolutely adore him and hold him in you know hold him in high regard until she's you know in a I think she's in her early twenties at this point. Or maybe just before he holds her in high esteem. So there's there's always going to be that chemistry. It's a case of sort of I suppose kind of like meeting your heroes, and any, any doing it any other way, the connection between Madame de Pompadour and the Doctor would have just felt rushed and ridiculous, and ultimately a bit naff. But to me, this particular bit ties it all together and makes it work. And obviously with the performances of, of Sophia Miles and David Tennant. Yeah, I, I agree. I, and at the end, the, the shouting of, I just snogged Madame de Pompadour. Oh, and, so and funny. Throwing his head back and that big David Tennant grin and <laughs> laugh. It's just... Because you've got this, again, this exchange between the two. And I don't want to say battle of wits, but it's kind of the doctor's trying to, you know, half explain certain things, but she's keeping up with him, as you said, Dan. Yeah. And it, it's not, it's not serious as in, you know, 
I can't, I can't find the right word. I suppose, I suppose it's a little bit intense, potentially, between the, yeah. the exchange between the two. And then you get that bit at the end, the little bit of lightheartedness. The way it was structured for me is, is superb, because as the Doctor leaves the scene, you've got a smile on your face again. Yeah, absolutely. It's it, it's just so well done. So, so well done. And like I say, it just sets the tone for everything and, and ultimately ties the whole... Sort of, I suppose, subplot of their relationship together. Mm. It's like I said, with, without this, I don't think it works. No, I think you're right. I think you're right. Uh, back on the spaceship, the Doctor sees that despite telling people never to wander off, everyone always fucking does. So yeah. he has a little moan about that. And he says, you don't know what's on this spaceship. There could be anything. And he turns his head and there's a big white horse. Yeah, naturally. Yeah, yeah why not? Yeah, it's just there. Um, Incredibly random, you know, at at first glance. But I suppose it makes sense because of the the portals back and forth from the French era and and they have uh, horses on their court and so on. Meanwhile, Rose and Mickey are doing their wandering off. And um, <laughs> did, you, did you did you see Mickey doing the commando rolls on his shoulder, holding the gun, and yeah. like, yeah, like well, if I was if I was younger and and, and fitter, I'd I'd be doing exactly the same thing. I'd be I'd be playing like aliens, you know, <laughs> pretending to be like one of the marines, just, <laughs> um, which I thought was funny. But it, we see this camera that's on like an extendable stalk, and it's not the best CGI. No, um, no. we get both the good and the bad CGI of, of, of the time in this. And this is the bad bit. Um, I think the exterior of the spaceship, whenever we see that, looks brilliant. That's held up really well. Yes, that but, looks great. But this eyeball is terrible. Um, yeah. And it just, it, it, Mickey looks at the camera and he's got his big ice gun and he's just going, you looking at me? And he just has this comedy yelp as it gets closer to it. <laughs> it's like, he's acting like, I was like, you looking at me? And it goes to him like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> then there's another body part as well, isn't there? There's the heart. Ooh, yeah, it's a bit more sinister. Yeah. But again, again, they do it with the sound. You hear this thumping sound. And it sort of registers in the back of your mind. Like, I know that. They open a panel and there's a heart wired in. That's pretty damn grim. Mm, yeah, I mean, I suppose as well, something we, we, we failed to mention at the very start of the episode, which would tie back into what we're discussing at this moment. When the Doctor, Rose and Mickey first arrived, they thought they could smell barbecue. No, uh, they said Sunday roast. Mickey did. Oh, Sunday roast. Okay, yes. Yeah, it's, the doctor references barbecue later, but yeah, Mickey mm. said, saying, can you smell that? It smells like somebody's cooking, and Mickey's there saying, yeah, Sunday roast, definitely. <laughs> yeah, so that's a bit uh, a bit maybe, on the grim side. Maybe, maybe at Hannibal Lecter's house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the doctor... The doctor's back in France again here, though, isn't he? he yeah, he's nipped through another little window or portal or... It's just having a wonder because that's what he can't stay away, can he? No, no, he can't. He's well, he just snogged Madame de Pompadour. She's a very, <laughs> very attractive lady. Let's not get this wrong. Yeah, oh, Sophia Miles is a fantastic act- uh, actress as well. Um, everything I've ever seen her in, she's just she's just quality. Hmm. And uh, Madame de Pompadour is out walking. We're in, in quite a regal estate, lots of grass and, and so on. And she's talking with her friend with their little umbrellas uh, and or sun umbrellas, I suppose, to give them the, the correct name, I guess. Parasol. And the, parasol, there we go. And they're talking about how um, one of the king's mistresses is unwell and potentially going to pass away. And they're kind of not exactly gutted about this, despite the words they are saying, <laughs> the words they are saying make out they're gutted, but their tone of voice shows that they are very much not. 
Oh yeah, it's some. It, I just quite like this because they just. I think we've all done it where you hear some bad news about somebody and you're just like, oh no. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> and you don't really give a shit. Um, but it was it was this appearance, I believe, for um, the the unnamed woman with them um, uh, with Renette. Uh, is an actress called uh, Angel Angel Colby, and she ended up um, going on to be one of the main characters in Merlin. Uh, shortly, a couple of years after this, I don't know if you ever watched ever watched that. I didn't, which is odd because if my memory serves me correctly, which normally, to be fair, it fucking doesn't. If my, me- <laughs> <laughs> if my memory serves me correctly, Merlin aired in the Saturday Doctor Who time slot when Doctor Who wasn't on air. I think you're right, actually. Yeah. Because um, there's a couple of Doctor Who times. Because I know you like the um, the episode Midnight, uh, which came just after Blink. You know where they're just sat in on the uh, on the Diamond Planet, and it's all those people just in the in the box, essentially, you know, in the in the in the sort of car thing. Yeah. Um, the lead guy out of Merlin was in that episode. He was the young lad. Oh, okay. In that family, so there's a couple of real, there's a couple of Doctor Tynes, and I think there's oh, there's obviously more as well with uh, Richard Wilson. He plays, um, oh, I can't remember the name of the bloody wizard that he played. Um, oh, this is going to do my head until I was it Merlin? Until I remember it. No, because no, because the young <laughs> the young lad the young lad played Merlin. You pissed it. <laughs> oh God, I played a character called Gaius. Did, okay. Uh, you could literally anyway. have said anything there. You could have said he he, he played a wizard called Malcolm, and I just I don't think yeah. that's value. I, I, no, I'm not the wiser. He played a wizard called Keith. Oh dear. Gandalf. Gandalf. Saruman. Merlin. Gaius. Keith. You don't get many Keiths or Malcolms around anymore, do you? <laughs> I know a couple of Malcolms. Don't know many kids. Yeah, but I bet they're not younger ones, are they? That's what I mean. I, I read something online the other week about certain names that are dying out because people don't want to name their babies this name. Uh, and it, you go back to a certain era, people would name their baby Keith, and you would have baby Keith, you'd have baby Malcolm, baby Graham, baby Ian. But when Gary. You, you know Gary, baby Gary, you know, and when they grow up, that's fine. You know, Gary can be a forty-year-old bloke, no problem. Gary can't be a four-month-old. That's weird, having a, having a baby Gary. <laughs> calling, a, calling a two-month-old Bazza. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, <laughs> and, you know, so they're saying about how, I can't remember there's one of them, and I think I said it there, it might have been Ian. He, it's a name that apparently within the next 10 years would have, would have died out. It'll come back you know? at some point. The, the future hipsters will be all over it. Yeah, their stupid floppy hair and braces. I embrace this for your trousers, not your teeth, because people need those. <laughs> I was going to say, you're talking about floppy hair. Yours goes down to your ass nearly. Uh, yeah, but mine, mine's, mine's, mine's good. Mine's a, you know, mine's a statement. Mine's not fucking hipster bullshit. If statement, anything, mine... your, st- your statement being sponsor me, L'Oreal. Yeah, basically. My, 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 hair's, uh, <laughs> my hair's anti-hipster because, you know, people in fashion at the moment would look at my hair and go, fuck me, what do you think you are, 1976? You know, it's uh, <laughs> it's the opposite end of the spectrum, I think. Anyway, shall we get back to France? Yeah, let's. Yeah, <laughs> it's this whole exchange though with uh, with Renette and a friend. It's it is quite funny. You said about Madame, uh, Madame de Chateau uh, being ill and close to death and the faking giving a shit. All the while, the doctor's just sort of 
lurking and he keeps ducking down when Renette turns around. And yeah, it's a bit creepy. I appreciate why he doesn't want to interfere with the timeline, I suppose, and, and, and so on. But it's a bit... It's a bit creepy, the way bit, he's like having a, a bit, bit stalkery. Yeah. Yeah, this is, one of, this, is one of my, this is one of my nitpicks. Um, to be honest, it's just... He didn't necessarily need to be there, or if he was there, he, I don't know, there was just no good way to get this scene in without having the Doctor look like a massive creeper. Um, but we do yeah. get basically saying that the King will need a new consort, and I think it's quite telling about French society at the time where the line where Sophia Mal says that he's the King and I love him with all my heart and I look forward to meeting him. Yeah. It's just, <laughs> It's like it's it's almost like she's, it's a job application, you know. And when and they have a, a sort of a, an exchange to to end it, where saying every woman in Paris knows your ambition, and and Renette turns around and says every woman in Paris shares them. Mm. And it's like you know they can they can talk about me all they want, but they do the exact same thing if they could. And this this kind of this is very sort of true to life because at the t- at the time when she was alive, Madame de Pompadour was had a lot of political enemies. Um, you know, in, in the French court, but she managed to navigate it all um, and did incredibly well. She's looked on much more favourably uh, by historians than than she was at the time by a large uh, sector of, uh, of, of French society. Mm. Yeah, I mean, she was very influential for a long time, wasn't she? Apparently right up to her death, she still had a lot of well, well, this, 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 this is the thing, it wasn't a long time. Um, you know, she, it, as we'll come to later on, she did die at 42, and I think okay, but had, I mean, I mean, with regards to her adult life, then she, she, she had a, a great, uh, I suppose, amount of power because these, like the official mistress, I guess, is a title that's used. Yeah. They would have the king's ear and be almost like an additional advisor. I suppose. Mm. Well, I suppose an, ad- an advisor with benefits, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but well, she was one of the queen's ladies in waiting. You know that that was a, that was a really high position in court at, at that point, and and like you say, a position of great influence. So she's got the ear of the queen. She's got the she's got the ear and, and much more of the king. Yeah, she um, hasn't just got the ear of the king. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she's frequently frequently got his bollocks in her purse. Um, <laughs> but yeah, she she did a, a vast amount with what little time she had, mm. um, which yeah, I think was if I remember rightly, was around about six years. Okay. I think. Don't quote me on it. Uh, okay, fair enough. Um, I don't know if I've missed something here in my notes because hmm. the next thing I have is that... The, well, no, 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 no. sorry. I know what I'm doing. I know that's very, very hard <laughs> <Yeah>. to believe. <laughs> the Doctor returns to the spaceship and Mickey and Rose are looking through the opposite side of a mirror, I guess it back into France again. Yes. And the doctor arrives, uh, and, and, you know, Rose is like, well, where have you been? And he gives a list of the stuff he's been doing. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> became, became the imaginary friend of a future French aristocrat, picked a fight with a clockwork man, met a horse and the horse is just behind him. And Mickey's, <laughs> Mickey, quite rightly says, what's a horse doing on a spaceship? And then the doctor just, it, this has always struck me as a bit weird and unnecessarily angry. Which says, Mickey, what's pre-revolutionary France doing on a spaceship? Get a little perspective. <laughs> and it's yeah. like, on one hand, yes. On the other hand, 
it's a perfectly valid question. Don't bite mm. his head off. And <laughs> I suppose the context of where Mickey is stood at that moment would also make sense with regards to Mickey's question because he's looking through a pane of glass. It's almost like watching a television or watching mm. you know a film or whatever. It's what's going on is effectively behind a screen, whereas the horse is right fucking there. Practically snorting in his ear. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So to me, I can I can understand why Mickey would have his attention drawn away from the the mirror perving back into the past and the horse <laughs> the horse that's basically snorting in his face, you know? The, the future the future pervs are the future pervs are out of the horse. Yeah. <laughs> oh god, the future pervs are on the lineup for Gallifest. Um <laughs> but, this is the point where we get the, the sort of iconic line of the show that I mentioned before, a spaceship from the 51st century stalking a woman from the 18th. And at this point, David Tennant uh, catches the rest up on who who Renette is. Uh, Jean-Antoinette Pass, uh, Poisson, known to her friends as Renette, one of the most accomplished women who ever lived. And they say, you know, she's no designs on being queen, but wants to be mistress. And this is the point where Rose says a line that, Hasn't exactly aged well, <laughs> given who, uh, given the current royalty situation in Britain. She oh. just sort of leads her head back and goes, "Oh, I get it, Camilla." <laughs> 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 now, Queen Consort Camilla, of course. <laughs> but um, yeah, that just that amused me. Um, With regards to um, the name Renette, which is probably what going forward I will I will refer to her as, because Madame de Pompadour is. Uh, the potential there for me very very likely to get that wrong mispronounce it and get laughed I can't, please 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 carry on saying madame de pompadour because i can't wait for you to say madman de pumpy dump or something <laughs> like that <laughs> but uh when i was when i was sort of doing a little bit of research and you know again a little bit of research i'm not that professional apparently there's a slight error because renette in 1727 when she was the child referred to mm. herself as renette but this was a nickname that meant Little Queen, which was not given to her until three or four years later. All oh, right, fair enough. So, um, yeah, I can I can let that slight inaccuracy slide. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, I wouldn't have known about it if I hadn't looked it up. So, well, I did a bit of research on this. I didn't even see that. So, <laughs> oh okay, <laughs> top work. Well, but um, this sort of scene they're looking at is is what's called the U Tree Ball, and it's the night that that Renette establishes herself as, as the King's official mistress. And, um, you know, that leads to her getting the title, uh, Madman de Pumpy Dump. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> oh God. No, <laughs> How's that? <laughs> why, are we so, why are we such children? I don't know. It's not that funny. Um, it's not at all, but this is going to be the next 10 minutes of this fucking show and give you loads of editing to do. <laughs> oh, right. Um, so at this point, um, Renette's checking herself in the mirror and um, they're establishing that her and the Queen actually got on very well, as we mentioned. And that's when the Doctor spots the broken clock and we hear the, fati- uh, the fatilia, familiar guy <laughs> You make one joke about Simon's pronouncing something and then your, your speech goes all over the shop. Um, <laughs> so the doctor spots the broken clock in the room and obviously has to step in and, and freezes it with a fire extinguisher and leading essentially to that um, interrogation scene. Yeah, and I liked this because 
it fills in a lot of blanks for you. And the way they do it is quite clever because it's not like the Bond villain in the in the James Bond movies. Just before he kills James Bond, give t- explaining his whole plan to James Bond, and then walking <laughs> away without actually watching the guy die. So inevitably he escapes, <laughs> and he now knows the whole plan. But we do need to establish what's going on. Why do they want Renette? Why are they doing this three thousand years in the future? And the fact that they're kind of sort of synced in to Renette's um life means that she can ask it questions or make certain requests which we saw in the opening scene or not opening scene but earlier scene where she was still a child and you know she she shouted something at it and it responded so the doctor asks questions and and the clockwork man blanks him Mm. but he tells renette to tell the clockwork man to give permission to answer his questions or he answer you know ask questions and and the clockwork man answer well i thought that was a really clever little touch it's even more clever than that because the doctor tells Renette to, to ask the robot and Renette very quickly and efficiently demands that the robot answer all questions put to it. Mm-hmm. So rather than the doctor having to relay the question to her to relay to the robot, she just cuts out the middleman and says, answer all the questions. And just like yeah. that, we get, we get the robot saying there was an ion storm that led to an 82% system failure on the ship. Why has it taken so long to fix? They didn't have the parts. We get... Mickey, kind of annoyingly, as I said before, he's like, it always comes down to that, the parts. It's like, that is not a useful insight. Shut up. No. Um, yeah, just just that one line. No, thank you. you this is serious now. Um, and there's kind of a great thing where the doctor's like, so where, where the hell are the crew gone? There was 50 people. And the answer's always the same from the robot. We didn't have, we did not have the parts. And it takes mm-hmm. ages for the doctor to twig that they used the crew. And it's just doing what it's programmed to, repairing the ship any way it can with whatever it can find. No one told it the crew weren't on the menu. And again, this is, sorry, this is, um, it's very chilling. And that line, we did not have the parts, said a few times here. And then you're in your head, you're starting to think, okay, the heart, the eye, Mm -hmm. the, the smell of the meat cooking. It's like, oh dear. But it's, it's quite clever for me because sometimes I'm not a fan of bad guys being evil for the sake of it. I mean, we get this quite a bit with the master in classic who the master is just an evil dude and he Mm. does evil shit. And sometimes that's the explanation they give. And it's like, well, that's not quite enough for me. He he needs a motivation or whatever here. The, 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 you know, clockwork men, they are just doing what they believe to be right because they Not are programmed even, to repair the ship. They, they're they just doing what they need to do to fulfill their, I suppose, their orders or their command or their, their requirement, I guess. That's it. That's the, that's it. Then it's, there's no emotion in it. There's no right or wrong. There's no morality. It's just what they need to do to fulfill their programming. And mm. that, it makes it scarier to me because it's the old, it's the old Terminator thing, you know, it can't be bargained with, it can't be reasoned with, and it absolutely will not stop. And it's the same principle here. You know, that they're just doing what they're programmed to do, and they will, because it's not in their programming parameters, they will do whatever they have to do, you know, wherever logic takes them. And so you add that to then the doctor saying what, you know, um, recounting the smell, saying flesh plus heat, barbecue. Mm. Fuck me, that's dark. 
Yes, it is indeed. Um, we end up here then with basically the, the next big thing we have is Mickey and Rose are captured because they're back on the ship, but the doctor stays. How, how do they get separated here? I, I can't recall. So what happens is from here, um, the doctor's still trying to interrogate the robot. Um, it's saying that Renette is incomplete and they just mm-hmm. keep opening windows and scanning it to see if she's done. Um, Rose asks why her and they say, we are the same. Renette takes offense. They say demands that it get out of her sight. So it teleports away. The doctor surmises that it, it's a short-range teleport. It must have gone back to the ship. And we get a wonderful little exchange just for a bit of comedic levity um, where the doctor says, take Ro- uh, says to Rose, take Mickey and Arthur and go after it. And she says, who's Arthur? And she says, it's the horse. Then she's like, you're not keeping the horse. And he just goes, i let you keep Mickey. Now go. <laughs> that <laughs> moment there, Charlie barely laughed. Bear in mind, this is the second time <laughs> she's seen this in the course of a few weeks. She proper roared. She barely laughed at that. Oh, it's, it's a great line, but it loses none of the urgency, but which makes it even funnier. Um, the Doctor establishes a psychic connection with Renette to see what's been going on in her brain and repeats what he said when he found the, when he found the state of the ship, saying that she's had some cowboys in here. Um, we then see Mickey and uh, Rose walking the ship, and Mickey's... This is the thing. It's, kind of, it's a bit like the Matt Smith and Rory relationship with Tennant and Mickey. Because Mickey's alluding to the Doctor being a bit of a player and mentioning Sarah Jane, Madame de Pompadour, and Cleopatra. Mm-hmm. And Rose is kind of protesting. He's like, you mentioned Cle- Cleopatra once. Like, yeah, but you called her Cleo. And then they, <laughs> but they essentially get jumped by the robots and sedated. That's right. And this, this sort of, because I think we needed that downtime, obviously to get Mickey and, and Rose to where they needed to be for later on, but also to have this another great exchange between the Doctor and Lynette while he's doing this sort of psychic analysis, if you like, um, where he's he's sort of going through her memories and trying to see what they're looking for. And he's (laughs) immediately, Renette starts fucking with him again because he's there saying, if there's anything you don't want to see, just imagine a door and close it. Um, And he says, oh, actually, um, you might want to close, you know, getting all sort of, it's it's like, I can't, that's what I imagine Ten would be like looking at Capaldi's search history. <laughs> yeah. um, Time Lord Porn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh god, I can't think. I, I'm not. I can't think of a uh, a Pornhub Time Lord pun quick enough. So just imagine I did something funny. Um, <laughs> but she's although all while she's doing this and not closing the doors deliberately, she's grinning at him mischievously. She knows exactly what she's doing, and it's brilliant. Yeah. Um, but then she gets the line, says, to walk among the memories of another living soul, do you ever get used to it? And it's, it's just, it, it's the sort of, it's the, it's the formality and the eloquence of, the, of sort of the time period, I suppose, that really makes it stand out. And she gets these wonderful sort of little, I don't want to say monologues, because she never goes on for that long, but just these great moments of screen time where she gets to just be eloquent and put forth so much into the story and it all comes on later on he's saying you know um he doesn't make a habit of it and then the doctor asks how old she is and she says so impertinent a question so early in the conversation how promising <laughs> it's just like no fucking about she's yeah. just like brilliant i'm having this um, <laughs> it's kind of like you know it's not the doctor's question it's theirs it's what they've been scanning for him I, I, I don't want to hog up all the, um, you know, all, all this scene, but I 
really liked what they did here because again much like the the scene before with the doctor uh, going through sort of his admiration for for Renette uh, realizing she's Madame de Pompadour this fills in so much from Renette's side when she's in the doctor's mind and she sees his past and all these bits and pieces and it, it you can almost see in her face that she kind of falls in love with him a bit more yeah, and I think this is something that, well, again, sorry, Dan, what was the actress's name? Sophia Miles. Okay. I think this is something that we see all the way through the episode, and in certain moments, it really stands out. In a way, I guess, similar to how we've praised Tenant before on the podcast, that so much can be done with their acting ability via, via just their eyes or their face. And... Mm this is one of the ones that stands out for me. And also we'll, we'll get to it very soon because we're, we're sort of racing through this episode to be fair. Uh, we'll get to one very soon as well. That was fantastic in just the reaction in the face tells so much. And you're right. It really does. You can see her admiration growing, but also the clever switch because the doctor is supposed to be looking through her memories mm. and she's saying things that could apply to her but also potentially apply to the doctor as she is seeing his memories. So it's quite mm-hmm. a clever kind of almost, uh, almost sort of like, you know, two sided, two bladed sword or however it's worded. It's double edged sword. Double edged sword. There we go. It's, it's very clever until the doctor twigs that she can, you know, access his thoughts and his memories also, and almost mm-hmm. steps away a little bit. I mean, that was really well done. And again, it's yeah. not a very long scene, but it's it does exactly what's necessary, or even more so potentially, because I don't think you needed all of that in there. But it adds to it, and it's good that it is there. Yeah, yeah. You, again, it's one of these scenes I said before. You extrapolate so much from it, and it does so much without saying what it's doing. It leads you to it. You know, when she's there saying it's so lonely, so very, very alone, and he's saying, "What do you mean alone? You've never been alone in your life." And it, it's at that moment he realizes that she started calling him Doctor. Yes. And he says, she says, such a lonely little boy. Lonely then and lonely now. How can you bear it? And it's just that, or at least for me, made me think about how the Doctor had been travelling before he met Rose, but as Eccleston, after Mm -hmm. the Time War, coming through all that, you know, and the character change across Eccleston's time with Rose, and then how, yes, he's still got Rose and Mickey's in the TARDIS, but he's still the last of his kind which has got to be an incredibly lonely thing. Yeah. And yeah, he, you know, he, 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 and just adding to that and playing on it, and he pulls away, like you said, and she, she sums it up brilliantly because it's it, all this talk of doors earlier on and, and imagining a door. And she says, a door once opened may be passed through either direction. And it's so simple a thought, but how many people would actually have it? It's yeah. sort of just, just more proof of how, how special a person that she actually is and how clever and, and, and all the rest of it and why he'd have great admiration for her. There's also just a, a slight element of Clara in there as well with that kind of logic. I don't know if I'm connecting dots there that aren't to be connected, but... No, 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 I see. Uh, that, that didn't enter my mind at all until literally now when you said it. But that makes sense to me. Now, yeah. now you've pointed that out. Yes, that is there. Yeah, um... And like I say, her face just softens and you can see it in her eyes that she's just looking at him thinking, oh, you you know, he, she, she she probably idolises or loves him on some level anyway because of saving her as a child. 
but now she's found out he's kind of this like lonely wandering hero. It's almost like how do you how do you not fall for somebody like that? Mm. Really, and she's saying you know dance you know asking asking him to dance and say she's kind of like oh fuck the king I'll dance with you first. <laughs> <laughs> That's like the king jealous. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which I thought was you know quite funny. And again, she's you know it's it's that sort of mischief in her that I think is brilliant. And you know she's saying there comes a time, time lord, when every little boy, every lonely little boy must learn how to dance, and just takes him away, takes him to. Uh, the U, the U tree ball or whatever it was, mm. and it was quite. It was a very sort of nice moment, and then that. But that leads perfectly into the next scene because Rose wakes up, and she's strapped to a table about to be carved up. Yeah, I mean, I, I, my notes literally say. Meanwhile, back on the ship, Mickey is being a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but. He's woken up, strapped to a table, about to be dissected by clockwork robots to become part of a spaceship. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I can fully understand because this is his first trip. It's his first real ex- uh, experience of this kind of scenario, I guess. Yeah. And Rose obviously has, you know, experienced this sort of thing before the dangers, the perils, and so on. So she's going to be a little bit more collected and and try and deal with the situation. So from a character standpoint, I I appreciate why Mickey is that way, but he just gets on my nerves. Yeah, I mean, I can, it, again, it goes back to this little bit of sort of competition between Mickey and the Doctor as far as Rose is concerned, because, you know, Mickey was saying before about, you know, alluding to the Doctor being a player and the Doctor's a bit of a shit to Mickey. And then, you know, now Mickey's saying, well, where the hell is he? You know, as if he, as if the Doctor owes him something or, you know, doesn't have anything more important to do or, you know, something like that. Um, so, yeah, I can see, I can see why it wind you up. Like I say, it's, it's an element of, um, you know, it's similar to Smith and, and Rory. And I think that's why he winds you up. Um, yeah, potentially. And I think as well, the way it's directed at Rose, it's not just a where's the doctor, we need help kind of statement to me. It comes yeah. across very much like he's saying to Rose, ha, look, he's not that great. Where is he now? What's he doing now? Where's this wonderful doctor of yours now? It's almost yeah. like he's he, he, he sort of really sneery, sneery at Rose and being like, you know. He's, he's scoring points or trying to yeah and, and it's like in their mind in, in theory in, the, in their mind in the characters minds at this moment they are moments away from potential death and he is taking that opportunity to be like yeah tell you say yeah yeah it's it's not great it's not a great moment um, so yeah it's just pff, crap from Mickey really but yeah. then we get but then we get to see the doctor waltzing in pissed with his tie around his head singing I could have I could have danced all night and he's wearing sunglasses <laughs> and oh. we get, Rose has been stalling for time and he's just like have you met the French my god they know how to party and she's just she's giving it the uh, the long suffering housewife routine well look what the cat dragged in the oncoming storm <laughs> yeah that was excellent I really enjoyed that <laughs> and he's giving it you Sam just like your mother <laughs> <laughs> oh. which is guaranteed to piss anyone off Oh yeah, totally. Um, I just, but again, it's it's classic, it's brilliant misdirection. This whole scene, and you know, tenants giving it up. You know, I think I've invented the banana daiquiri a few centuries early. Do you know they've never seen a banana before? Always take a banana to a party, Rose. Bananas are good, and I don't know if you'd remember this because it was just a throwaway line. It's just come back to me now. Um, Christopher Eccleston said the same thing in uh, in the Doctor dances that we covered when he uh, switched out Jack's um, gun for a banana. 
Yeah, and he he he'd, uh, destroyed the factory that makes the guns as well, hadn't he? And, yeah, and, uh, now they grow bananas I mean, there. It's a, because <laughs> because bananas are good. Yeah. <laughs> with um with this the as, as he comes sort of bundling in spinning around singing and, and and so on and all the clockwork men kind of stop what they're doing turn their heads slightly and tilt their heads almost like they're a little bit puzzled as to what's going on it reminded me of the final jodie whittaker episode where the master starts dancing to boney m and the Cyberman and the Dalek look at each other a little bit like, "What? What, what <laughs> <Yes>. is this?" <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then you get, then you get the playground insults from Tennant. You know, he's, he's still acting drunk. He's like, "Oh, look, it's you! You're my favourite because you're thick. You missed a <laughs> thick, thick, thickety thick face from Thick Town, thick ain't you? And so's your dad." <laughs> that that was very Blackadder for me as well. You know, yes, it was, yeah. Yeah, actually, yeah, I've not made that connection, but yeah, you're exactly right. That's... Is it um, Captain Cunning from Cunning Town or something like that you said? No, it's, um, is it as cunning as a fox who's That's just it. been named Professor of Cunning at Oxford University? Yeah, there you <laughs> go. <laughs> yeah. I've not made that connection. Yeah, I like that. That's when, that's why I like it. Um, but we've sort of established now that Renette, uh, sorry, the ship is 37 years old, and they think Renette has to be 37 to be compatible, and they want her brain to be the ship's computer. Yeah, and that's why they're sort of dipping in and out of her life in different moments, scanning her, and the line, you know, she is not compatible, is because she's not 37 yet. So, in, in again, as, as daft as this sounds, because it's time travel, it's a spaceship that needs a brain to work, it's robotic men, it's, you know, France, and then 3,000 years in the future. It literally boils down to being quite simple in a way, and that's why there's all these different, you know, portals to jump in and out of her life at, because they're just waiting for her to turn 37 or find the right yeah. the right portal. So despite all this stuff going on, the actual plot, when you boil it right down to the basics, is simply brilliant. It's uh, I think the sort of the thought that went through my head was complex events from simple logic. Okay, yeah. Um, and that's what this all is. But what I, lo- what I love about this is that the Doctor suddenly shifts and says, if, if you believe that, then you probably believe this is a glass of wine. And he li- rips the robot's wig off and pours this liquid into the convenient gap in the top of the robot's head. Mm. And it shuts it down. It's something a bit of wee will beep boop. It's multigrain anti-oil. If it moves, it doesn't. So it's a liquid designed to do the opposite of oil. So obviously oil makes things move more, you know, more slickly. And this is designed to gum it all up. And I like you- the idea that he says, if it moves, it doesn't. As yeah. though that is like the advertising slogan that you'd find on the box. <laughs> yeah. You know, or the radio that'd, jingle. That'd be on the packaging you get from Kablam. Yeah, exactly. There you go. <laughs> yeah. um, but the, the other robots start to go to go go to go for him and he shuts them all down with a button. Mm-hmm. Because he's he's obviously clocked the controls and you know, we release Rose and Mickey and he's, he's trying to shut all the windows, but he's lost his Zeus plugs that he was just using a minute ago as castanets. Brilliant. Um, and we very quickly established that with the damage to the ship, they can't accurately direct the portals. So they're lucky to hit the right century, and it's just trial and error after that. Which, again, is very robotic logic. There's like, here's what we can do. Let's just, excuse me, let's just keep going until we get the right door or get the right window. They're, you know, they're not going to tire. They're not going to, you know, they're not going to have to have a kip, are they? They will just no. keep going and they'll be relentless. Yeah, very um, Cyberman esque with regards to that. I feel, and that's that's a, yeah, a, a little that bit, Charlie yeah. made Charlie made as well with regards to that they are you know non stop 
And again, it's robotic men, so you can see the link, I guess. But when you see how the Cybermen move, and you almost get the similar stomp noise, not not as dramatic as the Cybermen, but you can hear the dun 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 as they're stomping around in the in the um yeah the, the, the dance hall or the ball and whatever in, in the uh, one particular scene. And Charlie was <laughs> in, Char- in Charlie hall. said that's one in the ball hall, yeah. <laughs> Charlie said about them being. Cyberman esque, and I was like, "Well, yeah, that's a good point." To be fair, <laughs> Madame de Dump, Madame de Pumpy Dump in the ball hall. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, no, the, stop, the, I'm not doing that again. The whole issue with the the portals being trial and error, which which is spot on, that uh, comes up here when Rose, effectively, Rose is sent by the Doctor to go and speak to Renette and yeah. inform her that this this. You know, this situation is coming when she turns 37, but she's arrived when she's 32. So she's got five years of this playing on her mind, which is a bit, well, it's not an ideal situation, is it? Let's be honest. But at least it's plenty of warning. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's a funny thing, this, because they're the, the having to do this because the the robot that he dumped the anti oil on then just pisses the oil out. Um, and he's just like, oh, a bit clever, and the, and the others rear up because there's a message come through, you know, bonging and ticking to say that they found the right, that the, they found the right door essentially. So Rosa's got a few minutes to try and explain to Renette these creatures that have stalked you your whole life are going to be here in five years. We don't know the exact date, and she's trying to get more info of it because she, you know, as far as Renette's concerned, she said well, we've got five years, and Rose says it right. So she, I haven't even got five minutes. Mm. it's happening for her now is the line she says which is yeah which is really good as well i think because you are literally talking you know she's 32 we're aware it's 37 so you know five years but rose dropping those couple of lines in like that shows yeah. the sort of two uh, i suppose separate worlds or, or separate uh timelines effectively and how things are different in on one side of the the portals to the other i guess Mm. And and again, they they leave it to Renette to sum it up in such a way that it makes sense, you know, in a in a sentence basically, because Rose is trying to explain about the ship and the different timelines and not quite getting how intelligent Renette actually is. And she says, Renette says, "There's a vessel in your world that the day where the days of my life are pressed together like the chapters of a book, so that he may step from one to the other without increase of age, while I, weary traveller, must always take the slower path." Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's perfect. That that is an yep. absolute perfect metaphor for it, you know, and an exact summation of 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 everything, and it is just brilliant, you know, just so concise and saying, you know, basically she's Rose is there to say the doctor promises that he'll be there, and he can't do it in person because he's preparing for it. And again, she, again, Renette sums everything up. She says, it's the way it's always been. The monsters and the Doctor. It seems you cannot have one without the other. And, and that's spot on. And I, I literally <laughs> said to Charlie, that's spot on, isn't it? And she, yeah. she's like, yeah, every you know, every story is like that. Yeah. And they sort of leave it as, you know, Rose is getting called away and, and, uh, and Renette says, one may tolerate a world full of demons for the sake of an angel. Which again is just another development in showing how how much how much she loves the doctor essentially mm. in, in a short period of time for us, but for her it's been twenty five years. Yes, yes, indeed. I also think as well because basically here 
Mickey jumps out from behind a, a big curtain or a, you know a, a tapestry or painting of some description and is calling Rose back and Renette sticks her head in and goes in onto the spaceship herself mm-hmm. and I think this is as as grown up Renette anyway we have the only occasion where she kind of shows a little fear potentially Mm. Because she can hear her own voice. And it, to us, it's the yelling in the fireplace from the opening scene. It's, yeah. That is happening on the spaceship at that moment. But obviously, it's five years away for, for, for Renette in her own time. And she can hear her own voice yelling for help and can hear the screams and, and of the people around her in France at that time. And then we see a little bit of fear. We see a little bit of you know, panic, almost some, some emotion that I guess, or an emotion, sorry, we get very rarely from this character, even in the face of potential death shortly in a couple of scenes time. She's very much, you know, brave in, in the, in the, in the face of that. But here, hearing people screaming and her own voice, you can see the worry and, and the upset and, and, and the fear in her face. Can't you? Oh, yeah, and it's perfectly logical. Imagine hearing that from something in your future, knowing that this is inevitability and it's going to happen. And But at the same time, it gives her five years to mentally prepare. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of the reason why she's so calm, because she knows she, she knows now that she just has to keep, or to try to keep them talking and the doctor will, will be there. And she sort of resolves to take the slower path and... Mickey, you know, Rose sort of shoes Mickey away for for a minute, and that takes the time to ask if Renette's okay. And she said, "No, but she's just she's just out with it." She's no, I'm very afraid, but the doctor is worth the monsters. And yeah, again, just another little touch there, which I think it's a great thing with Rose as well. You know, just taking the time to ask to <laughs> to ask if she's okay. You know, it, this is all happening so quickly, but she's got to make sure that Renette will actually make it to where she needs to make it yeah and and that line that the doctor is worth the monsters i think really resonates as well with rose because Mm. uh, and future companions in new who as well and i suppose for many companions in in old who it's it's kind of the basis of a lot of their relationships traveling with the doctor is worth the monsters otherwise why would you do it yeah exactly i think it's the i think it's the core premise of the show Mm. to be honest the doctor is worth the monsters um, and and but we go from this and, and we're we're back with the opening scene of the aristocrats running and screaming and being pursued by the robots. Renette shouting into the fireplace, and and the robots. We see the robots find her and order her to go with them. While and it's all sort of spliced in with the doctor frantically working on the ship, and you know they need the robots need proximity to the time portal as it's a limited range teleport which you know naturally you know we all know that of course um, yeah. it's it's logic and uh, renette's quite cutting with them she says your words mean nothing you are nothing and it's like i appreciate the sentiment but they don't really care no <laughs> and i quite just we very again it's very quick but we establish so many things of why certain things can't happen and, and they close off like potential plot holes one by one. So they can't use the TARDIS because they're part of events now. Mickey suggests just simply breaking through the glass. So, but it's, it's something called hyperplex on one side, plate glass on the other, they need a truck. They argue about the fact they don't have a truck because they're both annoyed and tense. And establish that if you smash the glass, you smash the time window and there's no way back. Mm-hmm. 
great. Yeah. It's like six sentences, and they've gone and they've sort of ticked off about four different things that the, the audience would be asking. And and <clears> what we get next is uh, it can be, I suppose, potentially a bit cheesy. Yeah. But I think it's written that way to be a bit tongue in cheek, a bit comedy. But I love it because they say yeah. they haven't got a truck or haven't got a tank or whatever it was they said. It was no. true. Yeah. Okay. And huh, they've got another form of transport that has potentially the same huge amount of weight or force behind it because the doctor <laughs> smashes through the, again, a, a moment of dodgy CGI, smashes oh, through. It's terrible. The, yeah, it don't look good. Smashes through a mirror into the, the ball hall and um <laughs> into, madame, into madame de pumpy dumps ball hall yes and uh he on arthur the horse yeah. and then <laughs> the give a bloody great wink the, the doctor the doctor the doctor in like a stallion into madame de pompadour's ball hall um, <laughs> but <laughs> oh, fuck oh god uh, but before this you have one of the weirdest things it just sort of tickles me and weirds me out every time in that Renette gets taken into this into this ballroom and it's just a such distressing noise kindly remember that this is Versailles this is the royal court and we are French but yeah but you're saying that in a very English accent mm. Yeah. It just, it, I don't know. There's just a like a just a bit of dissonance about that. that just makes me makes me chuckle and then kind of just doesn't hit right. But yeah, you're absolutely right. You you hear the faint neighing and the clopping and the doctor just, just barrels in on Arthur, who we don't see again from now on. I, I hope Arthur was all right. And you, it's, just, it's when the um, when he's talking to the King of France and says, "You know, this is my lover, the King of France." And he says, "Yeah, well, I'm the Lord of Tales, but you arrogant bastard." Yeah, exactly. It's, <laughs> it's it, it's again. It's so almost cheesy, tongue in cheek, and so on. But it really does work for me. It, it's a it's a little bit. It's it's a real dramatic scene, but it almost adds a little bit of light heartedness to that dramatic scene, which yeah. is completely Doctor Who for me. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you need again, you need that to sort of break the tension, add a bit of levity to make the next bits that much more effective because we go from this into um, sort of the scene where the doctor can basically just use his logic to, to disarm the robots and, and get them to power down, mm-hmm. you know, because you break the window, you break the, the time, uh, you, you break the link with the ship. He's effectively stranded them all, all there. Um, and he and looks so back they at have, it, They have no purpose, do they? Yeah. Uh, he looks back and he, you know, he says, talk about seven years, bad luck, try 3000. <laughs> yeah. And it's sort of interspersed with all this as the doctor does say, you know, you've got no purpose and, and they power down. It cuts back with Mickey asking questions, you know, <laughs> what did he do? How will he get back? It's, like, it's fairly obvious if you're paying attention, Mickey, you thick sod. Um, and Rose is just sort of stood there. And it, it goes back to that thing we were saying before about actors telling us things without saying anything and it's all in the face. She stood there and you know she's completely heartbroken. Mm. and lost and she's she's just sort of silently crying because she's been f- traveling with the doctor now for for a fair while and he's effectively abandoned her yeah it's a funny one because he's obviously got this this relationship or this link with with Renette whether mm. that is just solely romantic but also even if there is that not that side to it the doctor would risk himself 
to save somebody, anybody. Yeah. So it depends on which way Rose is looking at it. It could be a, a, almost a jealousy standpoint because he's obviously, you know, got these feelings for Renette or, or maybe it's both add to that. The fact that he's gone, mm-hmm. it's okay. It works on different levels for me. It's not just as straightforward as, Oh yeah, he's, he's abandoned her. It's almost like, I mean, I don't want to say jealousy, but there's almost a thing of, okay, well he's, he's done this for her and left Rose. It, it's, it's added levels, I think, to what Rose is feeling, potentially. It could be anything of what you just said, or it could be all of the above, and, it, and it's all sold. It's all open to interpretation by the look on Rose's face. Mm. And it's, it's, a, it's a great moment, just as, as an actress for, for Billy Piper, um, who I think goes, I think goes a, maybe a, a little bit un, underrated in into how good she actually is. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, oh, obviously, obviously everybody loves Rose as the first new Who companion, but um, yeah, I think I think some of it does go a bit underappreciated. Um, yeah, I think with Eccleston, <clears throat> her character wasn't as developed or as deep potentially. Yes, I think with Eccleston, it was a case she was the Doctor Who companion, and towards the end of Eccleston's run, there was a bit more to that. But primarily, that's what she was there for. She was there for us, the viewer, to you know, have a, a, a sort of viewpoint on the TARDIS via Rose. Now, with Tennant, there's so much more going on with the Rose character, I feel. I mean, everyone's aware of it. Don't, we don't need to dive into it all now because it'll take far too yeah. long. But I think her character, the character of Rose, and then, and then because the character becomes uh, deeper with more layers to it and a bit more, a bit more going on, it leans into the actress needing to be better at yeah. which she is. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, the the sort of the, the skills develop as needed, or, mm. or as shown as needed. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, but we have sort of. A, did you clock that Rose was just sort of staring out into space, and then it cuts to France, and the Doctor's looking at the stars while he's having a uh, while he's having a glass of wine with Renette. Mm. Um, yeah, they have like a, they have a sort of an exchange saying, "Oh, you know." Names are just titles that don't tell you anything. And he said, <laughs> like, like, like the doctor, like, like Madame de Pompadour. And <laughs> she sort of, she says about wanting to see the stars closer and how she's sort of figured out that he's trapped himself. And did he know that had happened? And he says, pretty much. Yeah. And she, again, she, she has that look at him like she did with the, um, you know, when, when they were psychically linked and saying, um, yet still you came. And it's like she's looking at him like my doctor, mm-hmm. sort of thing. And it's it, it kind of, I don't think he really picks up on that because he just he just sort of quite self satisfied. Just yeah, I did, didn't I? And uh, oh, I won't be doing that again, you know. When the mirror, <laughs> and it's, it's like when the mirror broke, it severed the connection. And he kind of he does that sort of thing that Tennant does, where he, he sort of his mind goes down a rabbit hole. And so there'll be a few more, few more broken mirrors and torn tapestries. And like, oh, I'll pay for the damage. Oh wait, I don't have any money. How do I How get, do you money? get money? <laughs> I was a little bit vague on money, and again, she has just jump in if if, if I'm talking too much. Because no, no, please the, carry on. The end of this is just so good, um, and they have a, like a sort of a nice moment where she says, "So here you are, my lonely angel, stuck on the slow path," and and it's sort of a, a culmination of all these sort of hints they've dropped in, and previously all, all sort of coming together, and it, it seems sort of quite happy to be on the slow path as it were yeah he's not devastated is he i think i think if this had happened 
I suppose we come back to the the two points potentially, don't we? Where mm. he has he's he's broken the the link with the spaceship by smashing the the mirror and all the portals and so on. If he had done that to just save a life, and that's kind of where that ends, mm. I think the Doctor would have potentially have been more distraught. But because yeah. he's done it and he has Renette there with him. Maybe it softens the blow a touch. I don't Defin- know. Definitely, yeah. I mean, that is absolutely the case. And so, because we at this point, you think it's kind of wrapping up the first time you watch it. And she says she she says it's a pity. She thinks she'd have enjoyed it. And he's like, "Well, I'm not going anywhere." And she's got one. She's got sort of one more trick up her sleeve. So, aren't you? And she sort of, she leads him away and. Go into one of her, you know, one of her chambers. I think it's in the bedroom, and, and there's the fireplace from a childhood room, and it's the original. She had it moved there, exact in every detail, in the hope that a door once opened may someday open again. And she says, you know, one never quite knows when one needs one's doctor. So the, again, it just shows the impact he's had on her life throughout that. That she went to great expense to move this fireplace with her, just in case he ever came back. Yeah. Which is yeah. amazing. And we kind of get sort of a bit of logic, sort of working through from Tennant saying the moving the fireplace severed the connections. That's what saved it. But the link is physical and it's still physically here. So he's sort of just tapping on it and he finds a loose connection and, you know, uses a sonic screwdriver. And he says, Wish me luck. And Renette just sort of it catches in her throat and she says, No. This is the moment I was referencing earlier on. Yeah. With regards to so much, uh, again, I, I, I'm I'm not an actor. I'm, I'm I've got no right to sort of judge people in a negative fashion, which sometimes we do on this show, just for you know shits and giggles. But praise where it's due. Again, similar to how we've praised Tenant before, with so much in the eyes and so much in the face. This was the other moment I was referencing. She literally mm-hmm. just says one word, one tiny little word, but it means so much more than if she you know reeled off two or three paragraphs it's the emotion mm-hmm. and the expression is just it, it blows me away it's so so you can you can feel it you know you can genuinely feel how she is feeling that emotion you share at that moment and all she said is two letters yeah and but that that sets off tenant as well because as the as it starts to spin and she says no and, and he realizes oh god she goes, oh God, what what does this actually mean? You yeah, know, and his she, face, she, yeah. And his face just drops. And he's he's manages to be to be terrified and, and upset and, and confused all at the same time. You know, we go on about about actors who, whose face can say so much and convey multiple emotions and how great a talent that is. Both of them have that here. And yeah, it's just like I say, two letters has done so much and turned the episode on its head almost. Mm. And he yells back through the fireplace to, to go pack a bag and pick a star. And he's going to take her off. And this is where I have a sort of a, a, a story annoyance point. Okay. Because I don't know whether to do this now or do it. Do it. I think I'll, I'll do it now because I do love the end of this, and I think it's amazing. So I'd rather end with sort of speaking positively about everything. At this moment, why didn't he go back through, stay with Renette as she packed the bag, 
and then go back with her mm. and take her back through. Now, this is all hindsight because without this, I don't think the ending's as powerful. Um, but it just bugs me. He yeah, knows I- that he knows that he knows there's an unstable time connection, which could have only gotten worse by the disconnection and then reconnection. And the state of the ship and the fact there's no there's no maintenance on it now. Do you think the what? doctor jumping on the fireplace uh, and and doing the old bullseye spinny thing and going back is caught up in the moment maybe because at one you know literally yeah. a minute yeah. or two previous he thinks he's he, uh, stranded I guess for, for want of a better phrase he he's stranded in 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 France in that time and then he's given this option. And he gets all excited when he finds the loose connection, zaps it with a sonic, gives it a go, it works. And then the the change in tenant's face when when the word no is said with the emotion from Renette, mm-hmm. that's when the doctor realizes. I almost put it down to him being just excited and things running away with him a little bit. Yeah, that's fair. That's absolutely fair. Yeah, and, and that explains it way perfectly. Um I think that this know, is normally you- the other way around. Well, yeah, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to give you a win. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, he's, he's hugging Rose. He even shakes Mickey's hand. And, you know, he's been gone for five and a half hours and always wait five and a half hours. Um, and he goes back for Renette. And this is where we get the big emotional gut punch. Um, he goes back into the castle. Everything's dark. And he sees the king of France stood there, Louis Fifteenth. says, um, he just missed her. She'll be in Paris by six. Mm-hmm. And he, he marvels at the at the lack of aging, you know, so many years since I saw you last, but not a day upon your face. And he's um, grey-haired at this stage, isn't he? Yeah, he's, he's just he's started going grey and all the rest of it, and saying she she spoke of you many times, often wished you'd visit again. And then <laughs> a line that was completely unnecessary, but of the times, both for when it was written and of obviously of 18th century France, where he says, you know how women are. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Fuck off, mate. You don't know how great the doctor is. Um, and he hands him a letter and watches the funeral carriage take her from Versailles for the last time. And, you know, she was only only 42 when she died and too young and she always did work too hard. And again, the, he's doing all the talking and, and Tennant's face in the background is saying more than, more than words ever could. And they have this sort of moment of quiet. Um, and then he asks, what did she say? And the doctor pockets the letter. Yeah, he just he just says, "Of course, quite right." And it, there's an edge of bitterness in his voice. But that there again, I mean, we're, we sing David Tennant's praises, and rightfully so. He's fantastic in this scene and this episode. And we sing the praises of again. The name escapes me. The lady who played uh, Renette, so- Sophia Miles. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and again, rightfully so. She is fantastic. The King of France here. Just that moment. It's almost like a little turn of the head away from the Doctor where he's almost resigned to the fact that he's not going to know what's in that letter, but he does yeah. agree that he probably shouldn't know. But as mm. you said, Danny also portrays that little bit of bitterness at the same time. It's, it's, it's on par. I think with some of the other, uh, I suppose, how would you word it? Face acting, I guess the expression <laughs> yeah. and the emotion coming across the, the words saying one thing, but in the eyes and the face portraying so much more than just, than just the dialogue. Yeah, it's brilliant. And yet another moment, which is what part of what makes this such a well-rounded episode. And we see the Doctor sort of solemnly walk back into the TARDIS and 
Rosie's asking why the robots wanted him. He's, you know, we'll probably never know, maybe due to the damage. Um, but the TARDIS can close the portal now that the, the robots are gone. And this change in tenant is, the last time they saw him, a few minutes ago, he was happy, bubbly, smiley, ecstatic to be back with them. And now he's uncharacteristically brief in his speech and, and subdued. And it's obvious that there's something bothering him. And it's such a great, again, a great sort of change from Tennant in his performance. And they give it, Rena Rose asks, are you all right? And he looks up and he says, I'm always all right. And he does this little smile, that little fake smile that doesn't quite reach the eyes and is designed to just get people to stop asking questions. I've yeah. uh, I've done that smile. On me. And it hurts. <laughs> it's horrible. Yeah. It, it, it's horrible to do. And it's horrible to see in people. But a lot sometimes it's just necessary. And just in that moment with that smile. And then when Mickey says ask Rose to show him around to, to give doctors privacy. That's a great moment for Mickey, by the way. Just saying. Oh yeah, um, totally. He's very He's switched on to this scenario. He's more switched on to this scenario than Rose is. Yeah, I think I think Rose is conflicted because she wants to be there for him, but doesn't quite know what to do. Yeah, or what to say. And sometimes you do just need to give people that space. But th- this is one of the most relatable moments in the whole show. It, 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 again, it's fantastic from all from Tennant's performance. Yeah, it's. Uh very emotional and it's again just the eyes of ten he starts firing the tardis up and just as he's looking around the the control panels and so on you know he's looking at the control panels and he's he's going to be you know again firing the tardis up and and pressing buttons and doing what he does but he's not really looking at the, the control panel you can see that even though he's looking at it his eyes are there, but his mind's elsewhere, if, if that yeah. makes sense. He, he's turning those controls, thinking about where he was going to take Renette. Mm. And that, that's what I get from that. And, and then he reads the letter. And it, it's again, it's, it's the poor... Way to, way to fuck up the emotional ending, Danny, you fucking crank. Um, <laughs> Sorry, start again, start again. Yeah, um, that'll go in the outtakes. Um, he, he gets the letter out, and it, it's... a, a great performance from Sophia Miles again, but this time in voiceover. Mm-hmm. Which, and shock horror, I've got it transcribed. I um, knew you would. <laughs> where she says, my dear doctor, the, the path has never seemed so, uh, seemed more slow, and yet I fear I am nearing its end. Reason tells me that you and I are unlikely to meet again, but I think I shall not listen to reason. I've seen the world inside your head and know that all things are possible. Hurry though, my love. My days grow shorter now and I'm so very weak. Godspeed, my lonely angel. And in that one bit, they've crammed in so much of what they shared together and what obviously clearly meant so much to both of them. And she's writing it as she's dying. And she knows she's dying. But she still holds out hope to the very end. Mm. That is so sad. And for this version of The Doctor, will inspire so much guilt to go along with the grief, so much more guilt, because grief always, always brings guilt on some level but for the for tenant's doctor to know that he's you know accidentally or otherwise caused this 
caused this person that he had they had great affection or even love for to have this level of of so it's a double edged sword is this kind of hope because yes it was something for it to cling on to but also he didn't live up to the expectations he couldn't say that he wasn't there that will prey on this version of the doctor's mind yeah and it, again he just the way he looks at the letter and he doesn't quite cry but you know the tears are look just behind the surface and he conveys so much loss and sorrow in just his face and his posture. Unreal. Mm. Unreal. Yes. Another fantastic performance by Tennant, isn't it? Yeah. And then the TARDIS dematerializes, and behind it is a portrait of Renette. Because all along, the ship was the SS Madame de Pompadour. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the link as to why they were... Yeah. Yeah, a clever little reveal at the end there. That uh, again, it's not. It's subtle enough to to not ruin the mood that's been set with the previous scene with the Doctor and the letter, but it's not so subtle that you overlook it. Yeah, and and I think a lot of this is down to soundtrack as well, because they give they have essentially a bit of theme, essentially theme music for Renette throughout this whole thing, and they're playing a, a slightly slowed down version of it as the TARDIS dematerializes and as we see this portrait. So it's all, it's already linking you with the sound to her hmm. as we're seeing all this little, as we're seeing the physical uh, links to her as well. Uh, again, it's just that apart from the little nitpicks I've said, there's so much to like and so much to love in this episode. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Uh, speaking of likes and loves, shall I run through the couple of notes that I have from uh, from Charlie now? Uh, yeah, actually, do you mind if I just go first? Because we do have a couple of actors, uh, sort of unsung heroes again. Um, oh, okay, yeah, brilliant. So just very quickly, uh, something a little bit happier. Um, I, I was just thinking of, of jumping in there with uh, Madman to Pumpy Dump again, but didn't want to go too comedy. Um, <laughs> So uh, one of the Clockwork Men uh, is played by Paul Casey. Uh, he's back for the second time this series after being in uh, uh, after being in End of the World, and he was also in Day of the Doctor in our first season. So we've now covered three of his thirty-eight episodes playing various villains uh, across his uh, fifteen years with Doctor Who from two thousand and five to twenty twenty. And in a curious thing, there are two. Uh, two actresses who played the clockwork uh, robots and they're both called Ellen Thomas and the first Ellen Thomas is spelt with two L's uh, she played Carmen in Planet of the Dead in 2009 one of the specials leading up to Tennant's uh, departure and Ellen Thomas spelt with one L who was an Auton in the, the very first episode in Rose who played a weeping angel in Blink was one of the future kind in Utopia in uh, 2007 and was also she was also a makeup artist in the spin-off series class huh, okay yeah so there um, you go a lot going on with her then <laughs> uh, so i love that stuff man it's great it's yeah cool. i do yeah uh okie doke should we should we go ahead and summarize the show i suppose now shall we oh do you want uh, do you know should we have a uh, i want to hear charlie's uh reaction yeah okay uh I've got my notes here and I'll literally just read them out and, and maybe explain if I've, if I've made poor notes or she was a bit more uh, 
short answer than intended. Um, Charlie says that whereas this episode was not her favorite, she really, really did like it. But when yeah. she says her favorite, she means she's singling down her literally only number one favorite. So yeah, but she did really like it. Um, she makes a really interesting point that it she felt it was similar to how the doctor first meets Amy Pond because mm. of the meeting Amy as a child nipping off for a bit coming back and as charlie words it the doctor can't quite get the time right and amy's aged and and so has renette and so on which i thought was quite an interesting point Dan, that is spot on yeah that that is so good and i was saying before i I can't quite remember anything like this where the doctor goes and comes back and and years have passed it it is right there looking in the face uh charlie's Mm. got it spot on it's it's how he meets amy pond yeah Uh, charlie says yeah, yeah. Charlie says that uh, Amy was sat waiting for the Doctor's return, and so did Madame de Pompadour. Uh, yeah. She can pronounce it much better than I. And um, <laughs> I asked her about Mickey, because obviously she's in the whole story arc with Mickey now, because mm. we're, we're into Ma- halfway through Matt Smith's first season. And she says that Mickey, in the very first episode he was in here, or at least travelling episode he was in here, uh, she says it's funny how shocked he is by everything. He asks lots of questions, which made her laugh for a bit, but then got a bit annoying. Mm. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, like I say, you know, sometimes in sometimes he does come across as hard done to in in his run, and then sometimes he's just a bit of an annoying dick. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, she says the Doctor is really funny throughout this whole story. Uh, she says that the Doctor is very funny when he figures out who Renette actually is and says, mm. I just snogged my Dom de Pompadour and spins round on the little balls, I think. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's funny when they come across the horse and every scene with the horse made her laugh. And it's really funny when the Doctor acts drunk, apparently. Yeah, I can go along with that. Yeah. Yeah, it's just smart kids. I don't know where she gets it from. Her mum, obviously, it ain't me. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, with regards to the bad guys, Charlie says they're cool villains. Uh, clever how they break clocks to disguise the ticking. Mm-hmm. She said that on this occasion, because it's the second time she's seen this episode, on this occasion, they weren't too creepy this time. But the first time she watched it, they were a bit more creepy. I suppose it's because she knows what's coming, potentially. Uh, yeah she makes the 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 likeness to the cybermen she says they're similar to how the cybermen are but she liked how they listened to renette like when she was giving orders and so on mm. and how when they were in the the hall everyone else listened to renette as well she was in charge and she was very fond of how the doctor kept the letter to himself because it's nobody else's business is her words and <laughs> quite right <laughs> yes and with regards to the ending she said it was a really really sad ending the doctor said give me two minutes and she died after six years that was really sad so yeah there we go spot on some spot on summation from charlie there i think she's uh she's absolutely right in everything she says the next step is getting her to actually record her thoughts <laughs> stop trying to pressure her into recording <laughs> <laughs> i think we're nearly there dan we're nearly there <laughs> You do, you do, know, you do, you do if she ever records, if she ever records live, obviously I'll, I'll, I'll monitor my language a bit better than I do now. But you do realise it'll end up in me and her rounding on you and just taking the piss. Oh, I fully expect that if Charlie gets to a stage where she's happy to to come on the show and just give a two three minute summary of what she's watched or answer a couple of questions from us, that she'll be so good at this. Season four of the Doctor Who Pod will be Dan Griffin and Charlie Powell. I'll be, I'll, I'll get, rele- I'll just get relegated to producer or some or editor or something like that. You know? 
Oh, fingers crossed. <laughs> Cheers, mate. <laughs> uh, in, in summary, for us, then, I mean, for, for me personally, I bloody love this. It's absolutely fantastic. Watching it back on my first watch back with Charlie, it was far better than I remembered. I looked forward to watching it back this occasion because of seeing it recently and thinking it was great. And it is even better again. So I think that's quite a rarity in television that if you watch it again and again, it gets better. I loved all the characters in it. The the dialogue was fantastic. It was incredibly well written. Just a fantastic episode for me, Dan. What about yourself? Yeah, well, this is more about your reaction than mine because I'm. this is one that I know inside out. I love it. I adore it. And you're exactly right. I'm still watching this now and noticing different bits about it because some of my analysis here that I've given and some of the points I've made have come from this viewing and I must have watched this 10 times. Okay. So it just, you just, when you, you know, and, and you know, I can, I switch various parts of my brain off at, at certain times and don't necessarily think into things too deeply, but it just, this it's still unfolding to me, you know, the certain aspects of the story, which as you say, is an incredibly rare thing. And, yeah, I, I love it as much as I did, but probably even more than when I first saw it. So I, I, set, I set out on most of my thoughts early on, so I don't need to go yeah. much deeper into that. On a um, sort of more general Doctor level, as I said, we're sort of seven, eight, nine episodes or whatever it may well be in to Matt Smith's run now mm-hmm. and with Charlie. So I asked her, I know David Tennant is your favourite, but can you rank the Doctors in order of your preference? And the reason I'm bringing this up is because of what she says after this, Dan. It does have some relevance to, to, to us and especially yourself. She mm. says that Tennant is her number one. She's only seen the three Doctors, so not the show, the, as in the three separate actors. Yeah. She's only seen the three so far. Tennant is her number one, head and shoulders. She loves him. Matt Smith is number two. She thinks he's very, very funny, but not mm. quite as good as David Tennant. And she says she's put an Eccleston third, but that doesn't mean she doesn't like him. He's brilliant. She just prefers the other two. And she said, even though Eccleston is third, her favourite story from New Who so far is the gas mask child one that says, are you my mummy? Is how she described it. Devil child. <laughs> I said, I'll tell Dan that because he don't like it. It's creepy. And she went, oh yeah, it's creepy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that's why I like it. It reminds me yeah. of the friends. I, it reminds me of the friends I see when I'm asleep. <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> uh where are we going next week my friend so mate next up it's our very first christmas special uh because if i've calculated this right this will be airing christmas week or thereabouts and uh sorry this upcoming episode not the one we've just done uh will be airing christmas week or thereabouts so i thought Let's have one of the uh, one of the Christmas specials because we've not done one yet, and we you know we like to throw in a couple of uh, special episodes. So we're having a bad Christmas, to be honest, because I've decided that we're going to go back to a Christmas Carol from twenty. I think it was yeah, twenty ten. Okay. Let, let me just double check that. I, I looked at this just before for fuck's sake. <laughs> brain like brain like an ass. This is a Matt Smith story, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it's Matt Smith. So it will be. It will be around about 2010. Um, and for my money, and for a lot of people's money, it is one of the worst Doctor Who episodes ever. In the whole, well, there's run. something for us all to look forward to. Yeah. So, so for all my uh, <laughs> for for all my bitching about Vampires of Venice, you can uh, you can tear me a new one for making you watch this, but. Uh, least we should have a good time having a laugh about how bizarre it is seeing michael gambon mess around with uh, catherine jenkins in a freezer 
I have got no idea what any of those references mean because I've never seen this. Oh, and the skyfish. Skyfish. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I, I'm looking forward to it purely from a uh, you know curiosity morbid. standpoint. <laughs> morbid curiosity. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> Whereabouts then, my friend? Can people find you and all the brilliant shows you're involved in online? Uh, you can find me on da- uh, on Dan Griffin on Twitter at Dan Griffin Twenty One. <laughs> <laughs> Usually talking about wrestling that's a minimum six weeks out of date or movies that are twenty five years out of date. If you want to hear more of my dulcet Yorkshire tones, uh, you can hear me on Unbooking the Territory uh, podcast with uh, my co-host UTT Rob, where we look at the firsts and lasts of professional wrestling, and our side project Unbooking the Tankatory, uh, where we look at the lives and times, the trials and tribulations, and the, all the matches of the in ring career of the hardest man that ever lived, Mr. David Tank Abbott. Um, one's, a, one's a niche podcast, one's a niche within a niche within a niche podcast. But come along, we have a laugh, we get pissed, we uh, we talk some uh, we talk some fun stuff. And yeah, I just, I enjoy doing them and I hope other people enjoy listening to them. Yeah, brilliant stuff, mate, brilliant stuff. Uh, I would love everybody listening to chuck the network a follow at SJP World Media on Facebook and Twitter. And also chuck it a follow or a subscribe or however you word it with regards to your podcast players, whether that's Spotify, Apple, Google, Podcast Republic, we're we're all over the place. And on the network there at SJP World Media, you obviously get this show as well as other shows looking back on old school wrestling, some nostalgia there, uh, some television programs, some shows looking at music, film. Some shows looking at modern day wrestling, uh, all sorts going on. There's uh, you know, a Murder in Mind podcast, uh, The Waiting Room, a Quantum Leap podcast. There's there's loads going on on the network. Lots of different hosts doing fantastic things. So make sure you're chucking that a follow on the social media accounts at SJP World Media on Facebook and Twitter, and also subscribing and following on your podcast players as well. But most importantly, you can follow this show on Facebook and Twitter at the Doctor Who Pod. That's at the D R W H O P O D at the Doctor Who Pod. And there we go. I am still looking forward to, I think, the Christmas episode. Dan, so. <laughs> I might wear a Santa hat. Will that make it better? Maybe. <laughs> we will see. We will see. <laughs> I'll speak to you next week, my friend. See you soon, buddy. And to everyone else, as always. Thank you for listening. Madame de Pumpy Dump. 